Spoilers Guide takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil. Where? A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... What rank does marrying a duke get you? And who is truly at fault for the duke? And... What happened to Catherine's parents? Uh, isn't he dealing with the other half of this rebellion? Look, if he didn't want to be fed to my acid-spewing crocodiles, he shouldn't have brought me bad news. Dread Emperor Malignant II the particularly petty. I gotta say, it would be cool if a crocodile pit came up later in this chapter. But what I can say comes up in this chapter is Catherine eating a breakfast at an inn, and then they all worry about the coming battle some more, and the battle starts to come. Sounds like a, a pretty intense chapter, partially, and also a pretty relaxing one, with, I assume, really delicious-sounding food? Uh, well, how do you feel about eggs, sausage, and uh-huh, uh-huh. a generous portion of buttered bread? It, hey, that's basically what I had for breakfast this morning. Sounds great. And then what if we included black pudding? You mean, like, a ambush from the, from the world's greatest role-playing game, like a monster from that, right? No, I mean a distinct regional type of blood sausage originating in the United Kingdom and Ireland, made from pork or occasionally beef blood with pork fat or beef suet and a cereal, usually oatmeal, oat groats, or barley groats. Can I have the monster instead? Huh. This article is about the traditional food made with pork blood. For the fictional creatures, see Black Pudding, parenthesis, the world's most famous role-playing game, parenthesis, and Brown Pudding, parenthesis, still that same terrible role-playing game, parenthesis. So, yeah, those are up there too. And probably better choices to eat. I, so I gotta say, yeah, I I just have more of a cultural aversion to blood than anything strong. I know that blood is a portion of a lot of things in a lot of cultures, but at the same time, when given the chance, I choose adobo over dinaguan. So you know, yeah, I've had black pudding before, of course, and I will say my sympathies, of course. It's not the worst thing I've ever eaten, but I would not choose to eat it again. And it is definitely a cultural thing because somehow in my heart of hearts, I find black pudding to be worse than examples of various cultures literally drinking blood directly out of an animal for sustenance. Like that sounds less objectionable to me than black pudding. Makes perfect sense though. Some people are just Draculas and have to do that. Sure. Uh, but. All cultural relativism aside, I have to say, Price is right. Their food is always delicious sounding, and they use blood far more productively. Their blood feeds a whole lot of people through 
sacrifice and ritual. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I, I gotta say, blood magic is probably a better choice than blood blood pudding, apparently, is what I'm calling it now. And speaking of feeding people with human sacrifice, I would like to be on record here that if any of us listeners, co-hosts, are in a survival situation and I die first, please feel free to eat me. I'm an organ donor. Like, I don't care what happens to my body. Save yourselves. Uh, also, I don't have that much meat on my bones. I'm so sorry. Likewise, feel free to eat me if I die first, I suppose. I have been planning on it. Well, good. It would be really funny, though, if somehow one of our listeners ended up needing to eat us. Like, the 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 sequence of events required to get to that point would make for a truly great story, I think. And it will be left to the other one of us to tell it. Speaking of great stories... There it is. Want to talk about tea? Sure. Sometimes they drink tea in Callow, and it's often not great, which makes perfect sense to me. Uh, the most popular stuff is cheap stuff, says Catherine. And so it is in the modern age where we have amazing trade networks, like truly shocking, absolutely planet-destroyingly great trade networks. You know, the most popular tea in the U.S. is probably that Lipton nonsense, which I must say is both sludge and wonderful. But as Catherine talks about tea trade networks, she notes that Mercantus was said to hitch up the price on the way north, but no less should be expected from the city of bought and sold. And like, yes, this is how trade functions. And in fact, (laughs) I'm not even going to take a moral stance against that in itself, because if you're in a currency-based system, you gotta make a living. Moving T north is a great service. It is fine. It is hilarious that she calls out a specific city for making a profit on trade. when that's how trade works for all time. In a different setting? In a different economy? Okay, I'll talk about it here. What? No, 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 because trading doesn't require there to be profit, but trade does. Yeah. So Catherine's eating breakfast and drinking tea and thinking about it, and she called it a Callowin breakfast. So mm-hmm. a full what's Callowin, going sure. on? I mean... We've got the full description. Egg sausage, black pudding, and buttered bread. The only thing missing at this point is horse milk, I assume? Which I don't have an aversion to. Nor horse meat. Those make a lot more sense to me than blood. But if you mix blood in the milk, I don't care for it. But again, that's a me thing. That's a reference to historical practices that I believe... I want to say the Enlightenment French were really into. Yeah, that checks out. But Catherine is eating at a Callowin Inn because she's tired of Legion Fair. And all I have to say is, the, the city's on, under martial law bracing for a demon, and the inn is open? I mean, people gotta eat, right? Like, yes, but like, this feels like a cower at home with your family. I know your home is probably in your inn. And share with neighbors, but the inn seems to be open for business from the way... I read things, and that's a bit weird to me. People gotta eat. And people gotta raise children. Also true. At this point, happy to say, not from the dead. Are you saying that Cat is a mother? Cat's not even a mommy. I'm very sorry to say. Wow. But Catherine has a powerful mothering instinct, because she knows that you can treat kids like people. Like, there are levels that you have to interact with children on. Don't get me wrong. You aren't going to go up to a three-year-old and discuss the intricate geopolitical situation in wherever. But you can treat children like people, and they tend to appreciate it. 
I find. And a six-year-old child, or I'm sorry, a child who couldn't be more than seven, and later we find out it's six, math checks out, hangs around Catherine and asks her if she is, in fact, a Jorah. And Catherine tells her that I'm half-blooded, I think. I'm too pale for both my parents having been from the people. Which stuns the child, who says, how can you not know? And I note, before we get to the response to the child, yeah, there you go. Give a child a direct answer. Catherine doesn't squat down with her hands on her knees and say, well, so some people are from one place and some people have parents from two different places. My daddy and mommy. No, you can. It's a six year old. That's like a person. You can probably talk to them about having people executed. This is what we in the biz call five shadowing. It's one better than foreshadowing. The kid is rude and says, how can you not know? And I think we get a minute, a moment of solidly fine parenting where the innkeeper says, don't be rude to patrons, Lily. Not everybody knows their mom and dad like you. Good, clear answer. With small children, sometimes the answer is just a fact. Well, yeah, not everyone can walk around. Some people use wheelchairs to help them move around. Some people need them all the time. Some people need them sometimes. There is a tendency some people have to feel terribly embarrassed and shush a child and try to move them away and apologize and apologize. And while apology is never a bad thing in rudeness, kids deserve answers. They don't know they're rude sometimes. They often know they're rude. Children are the devil and should be treated as such. Hmm. But but uh, even with all of that, the child understands what's going on enough here to try to comfort Pat in this. Uh, it's so cute. The, not everybody knows their mom and dad like you. And Lily's response is to say, that's sad, and pat Cat's hand for comfort. It's very sweet. And Catherine takes it very positively, even though the mother looks panicked, which is a reasonable response to anything when you're dealing with an occupying soldier before the demon comes. I, re I respect the fear. So remember my five shadowing? Uh, yes. They chat a bit. Really, Catherine and the mother. Um, but the child's there, as children tend to be. And they get to the point where Catherine admits having met Wasteland nobility. And Lily says, you've met nobles? What were they like? And Catherine said, most of them deserve to end up in a crocodile pit. One, it connects to the epigraph. Two, that's not a terrible phrase for a kid. Not to be a child-rearing podcast or anything, but I think that's a very solid, gruesome thing that's not actually terrible for the child to hear. Because it is, like much of phrase, comedically extreme. And it's not actually horrible from a child's perspective. Kids will walk up to you, poke something at you, and say, this is taking all of your blood away. And indeed, Lily finds it fun because her response to we should feed these people to crocodiles is to make some, as Kat describes them, vaguely reptilian noises and then start biting her places. and starts biting her mom. That's great. I love it. <laughs> it's it's a, a very child thing to do. But... It doesn't last very long because she jumps back to the conversation to mention that she waved at the Countess once, um, but seems a little disappointed because she follows that up with, she didn't wave back, though. And Pat thinks that's pretty funny and, and gives us a great, well, she's had a busy year. <laughs> it's pretty pretty good response. The, that level of understatement uh, <laughs> towards this six-year-old about what the Countess has been up to is it's pretty good. I'm sure the uh, uh, innkeeper and Catherine both were 
enjoyed that that response a lot more than Lily did. Just for you know, like you said, there's a level of geopolitical nonsense that Lily's not privy to. Yes, I'm trying to stop and probably kill that woman, but you know, you're not. It's not wrong to say she's been busy. <laughs> exactly. So of course, that's also the problem with war in a hierarchical structure because leaders are often afforded a bit of distance and respect from the atrocities they're forcing others to perform. But that's neither here nor there. Atrocities happen next chapter. Yeah. In this chapter, atrocities have happened. There's, so there's, we're all aware, there's an occupying army in Marchford. Uh, It's the Legion. It happens. Yeah, you know. And Kat is using her brief, not quite... Uh, dis- not, disguise is a strong word for what she's doing, but her 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 brief uh, moment under the radar here to ask some questions about the Callowans in the city and asks if there were some incidents in the city. And the innkeeper says there were scuffles. Some of the older men say it's all the Empire's fault. <laughs> Catherine internally admits to herself that they were technically correct. And I gotta say, it is some next level insight on both of these on the 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 part of both of these women to say that the occupying army is at fault for the bad things that are happening in the city and that the nation famous for doing demons is doing a demon technically technically yeah we're technically correct when we say that that's the the problem here but to be fair occupying armies are typically not great though i remind you the romans did bring the aqueducts but Catherine's got a relatively nice occupying army. Relatively being a strong, an important word, but oh, a yeah. relatively nice one. Yeah. Uh, turns out Hawkram has been doing some good work, keeping things, uh, keeping things from getting out of hand. Sorry, keeping things under control. Um, I really. We've already had so many sensitivity seminars here. I'm so I, sorry. I don't want to keep doing this. But she goes on to say that Ratface has been making rounds to make sure that people are getting fed. But there's an interesting note here where the innkeeper says to see that the people displaced by the goblins are properly fed. She is making a pretty blatant distinction between Ratface and even Hawkram and potentially the rest of the Legion and, on the other side, the goblins. It's not the sappers who are displacing people, or even the legionaries who are displacing people, it is the goblins. And I understand for a Kaluan that the goblins and orcs are, you know, crazy monsters, more or less, because that's how war works. But it is interesting that she specifically notices and remembers the goblins in all of this, as the people who are displacing other people. I think you do her generosity by assuming she'll say people displacing other people but well yeah very valid distinction good note may i make a pretty frivolous comment that i withheld because you were making a point please rad face is going around to see that people are fed and i just want to say that makes sense because he is a snack <laughs> which is <laughs> very good uh in fact thank you <laughs> uh catherine says that rad face is a good sort and the innkeeper asks you one of his, then? And all I have to say to that is, cat wishes. Don't we all? Amen. Uh, but Catherine replies vaguely, because, oh, these people don't know who she is. She's Legion, but not much else about, not much else other than that. And 
hilariously, it gets to one of those situations where they end up asking her, you ever met her, the squire? And Catherine replies a few times, which is hilariously kind of truly honest. <laughs> I guess so. Because if I said, you know, if you asked me, have you ever met the best host of this podcast? I would say, you know, a few times. That wouldn't be true. I talk to you every week on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But here, Catherine has met herself four times, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> and killed herself half of those. Yep. So, well, great work, Catherine. It's You get a little wonky if you say she killed herself half of those. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, she killed well, herself in half of those. And in half of those, she worked to kill herself both yeah, ways. Yeah, we'll allow it. And they talk, or the innkeeper talks to Catherine about the squire. We get a mm-hmm. peasant's perception. And a lot of it's obvious. Doesn't seem proper to have one of us as a villain, blah, blah, blah. But my favorite thing is, heard she helped hang mazes, so she can't be all evil. And I'm really here for that. That, yeah, that's just a mood. Big fan. Also cool that the story's getting out since no one was there. Right. The Unfortunately, though, we both know Catherine is extremely courageous to a fault perhaps and willing to does have faults yes that's what i'll take from this (laughs) and is willing to look death in the eye and stand her ground however i do have to accuse her of frankly rank cowardice because she's a little concerned about the rumors spreading about the hanging of mazes and is wondering why the rumors are spreading thinking of black here and she resists the urge to clench her fingers I'm sorry, what? I, is there a chance that she's trying to make sure that this woman doesn't recognize her through her signature mannerism? Oh, that could do it, actually. Like, you don't recognize Tricky Dick without the victory sign. Mm-hmm. You don't recognize Elon Musk without the both anti-Semitic and anti-Palestinian dog whistle tweets, if not explicitly anti-Semitic and anti-Palestinian, at the same time sometimes. I don't know if that's quite the same thing as a physical mannerism but sure i mean he's just the bad internet man so that is physical to him besides when we're all uploaded to Neuralink, which oh, we're very excited about and isn't the stupidest thing ever mm-hmm, absolutely but is this the only time Catherine manages to resist something her force of will is unending but it's a will that gets what it wants it, it's like a crocodile's jaw you know mm, you can hold it yeah. shut but you couldn't hold it open and Unless you're Steve Irwin, I think. I think this metaphor got away from you a little bit. Pour one out for the crocodile hunter. Unfortunately, this lovely conversation with an innkeeper and her daughter is cut short when other soldiers catch up to Catherine. Uh, specifically her guard, I believe. Catherine greets her, spearing, we're told, the last of the now-cold sausage and taking a bite. I am not a fast eater, and I respect this suffering so much. I eat cold food, and I drink cold tea. That's my life. I am chatty. And the reply is immediately, Lady Squire. Thus, letting the the, the cat out. The, so oh the, the cat, they let gosh. the cat out. Okay, yep. Ha ha, yep. You did good, good wordplay, my friend. So the innkeeper guests, and Catherine does not even acknowledge. She slides two gold Aureli across the table 15 times what the meal was worth, which I love. You know what? You're a rich wig army person. There's a lot of trouble in town and this means nothing to you. Give them something. Oh, sure. Good work. And 
she gets say something even more important, the warning to take your family to the center of the city. It'll be the safest place. And all I can say is, I'm hoping that I'm not failing to remember a part where we find out a horrible fate has befallen the child. I really hope things work out for these people. And I don't know if we find out. Don't tell me. I want to see. I won't tell you. Also, by the time this episode is published, I will be talking about it right now because these are live podcasts. It's actually a really cool thing we do. This takes all my time. Uh, Catherine has to go to an officer's meeting next. Yeah, we go from exciting conversation with local peasants to boring conversation with foreign warlords. Kind of rough. At least, you know, it's not too bad if you have something to take the edge off. That's a segue because Catherine's leg hurts and she oh, decides... Oh, Cry, baby. Like, get over it. It's just a leg. Right? We have an extra one. Plus, it's but dead. Didn't... How could it have that much feeling? Like, isn't the problem with it it explicitly died? It needs to die more. Mm. I don't appreciate how much I'm really considering whether that could work for her. I mean, uh, what better way to kill part of your body than with drugs, I guess? Well, that's not what the drugs are for. Oh. Uh, Catherine decides, I might have to take up Masego's offer of herbs to take the edge off. And yeah, like, there are difficult things around the topic of all sorts of medication. Don't get me wrong. And I won't fault people for not taking medication unless it's on a stupid ground like i don't think chemotherapy will help i think i should instead smell an herb what and look the, at the science but what if the apprentice gives you the herb and says it's magic that is totally different okay but if you're in pain and a drug makes the pain stop that's not a weakness and it's up to you to balance the choices but you're, you're not bad to take aspirin or fantasy vicodin as the case may be or as Chat... it's fantasy opium, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably closer to that. I mean, herbs also makes it maybe fantasy marijuana, but regardless, oh, though. But that's legal in some places, so it's okay. Sure, that's true. Catherine has an alternative solution, which is taking drinking more seriously. Wait, that can't be how she phrased it. Uh, as a matter of fact, it can be. So, no. uh... oh, Catherine. <laughs> Uh, which is, you know, here we go. Here's Catherine's leg hurts. Time to get in on just a concerning level of alcohol dependency. Yeah, Sierra, I really want to start taking drinking more seriously. I I've really just been a hobbyist until now. I'm, a I'm an armchair drinker at best. Fun fact, wine expertise is pretend. What, what are these sommeliers? They know nothing. And as they chat, they find out that people have been making phone calls again, even though demons knock down cell phone towers. Wow. But fortunately, yeah, uh, they have the apprentice who did a big fancy ritual and... Oh, they already did that? Apparently. So everything could blow up at any time? Yep. We're kind of riding the, the oh. nice edge here during this whole planning stage. Uh, but we find out that they're doing these scrying and that they have, um, like if not permanent, at least constant check-ins with scrying going on here throughout the battlefield. And the implication here, when Kat notices, oh, that'll be useful, we can react to changes immediately, that's great. The implication here is that this is not standard operating procedure for the Legions of Terror, which I get on a battlefield if you're marching out, but in any kind of defensive battle, it would seem like this is the kind of thing that somebody would have thought of before and would be the normal thing to do because of how extraordinarily useful it is like groundbreakingly world-changingly useful it is in, in terms of battlefield communication i want to 
to disagree with you. I wanted to fight with you on the reading because I just kind of skimmed by this and thought, I thought that the paragraph in question, starting with the grim-faced orc bared her teeth, was basically Juniper said that the ritual worked. So now we've got scrying again. And I, Catherine, was happy. But no, because would allow my legate to react immediately to changes on the battlefield if I grasped her intent correctly. Huh. That if I grasped her intent correctly really does not allow my interpretation at all. And this is groundbreaking to Catherine. Right. If this is a normal thing legions did whenever they were on the defensive, there'd be no intent to grasp. Cat would say, that's useful. The handbook says to do this whenever possible, you know, that kind of thing. Or just, that's a useful thing that the legions have in their back pocket for situations like this. And, you know, she goes on to say there's be- there'd been no time to set up that kind of thing when they fought the Silver Spears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she does, and, and, but defending a city was a different sort of business. Right. Is it just that since modern sophisticated scrying techniques have been more or less perfected, Grace hasn't fought a defensive war, maybe? I mean, to be fair, the Legions of Terror have never fought a defensive war. After the fields oh, of Strigis. That's fair, actually. Maybe, maybe that's all it is. And I don't know. It just... The fact that this isn't the expectation for defense is odd, especially since at this point, Prace is probably, in fact, we know that Prace is expecting at some point in the near future, a crusade to come from Prozer. You would think that... plan ahead for that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, my bad. You kind of just have to react when it happens. You're right. What was I thinking? Amadeus, roll with the punches, make it as I go, of the green stretch would never... Please, please, please. <laughs> I mean, no, that's actually a really interesting thing. Because at the end of the day, you'd think Black's ruthless, that's a segue, mind would be gaming this out literally 50 years ago. I'm sorry, ruthless is the... Okay, I see. Yeah, ruthless is a segue. <laughs> I was like scrolling it's, through, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, in this chapter, there is no one named Ruth. So it is ruthless. Uh, so Catherine has a plan, or rather, Hellhound and Catherine work together to form a plan that involves... Catherine fighting alongside a small number of soldiers, uh, yada, yada. There's a lot of tactics discussed here. I think a lot of it's interesting. I don't think a lot of it makes for great radio. Uh, regardless, she talks about needing the for- using the forlorn hope for this part of the plan that has her and some soldiers fighting the devils. And her officers are a little concerned. The forlorn hope are hard to... You can't really trust them. And Catherine says this is why they exist. And then says, if they can't be used, they should be hanged. Her officers apparently repress the urge to move back. And Catherine gives us this line, uh, you know, the internal narration here. One of these days, Precy would learn to stop thinking that mercy and ruthlessness were mutually exclusive. And I get what she's saying. She's saying, I showed them mercy, but I'm being ruthless with their lives anyway. And the Precy can't grok that, sure. But I have to say, from the outside looking in, I feel like describing what she did to slash for the forlorn hope as mercy is a bit of a stretch taking them from death row and putting them on the front lines against devils and saying you die now because i said you do rather than you die a few weeks ago because i said you do that's not mercy that's brutal pragmatism i guess hey i'm gonna magically extend your life by a few weeks wasn't that kind of me yeah but for those few weeks you are constantly under threat of just randomly dying and with the threat of yes. your death hanging over your head the entire time because I said it I will kill you whenever worse I want. With the details. <laughs> yeah, it does. It sounds way worse with the details. 
I just mercy is such a strange word. Cat, there's, uh, you know what? Fine. Catherine needs to tell herself these little lies to be okay with what she's doing. I guess maybe. Maybe. But that more or less wraps up the meeting that we are privy to. There's other discussions. People, obviously, there's more to the planning of a massive battle than one conversation here. Um, as Cat departs, she says, "Luck in battle," which is. You know, a nice thing to say, I guess. It, a pretty low-key departure, you know, before you head off for a fight. And then Juniper responds with something that reads as weird to me. Juniper grew up around Named. She's shown us that she's pretty canny when it comes to name lore uh, here or there. You know, she's talked to Catherine and been around Catherine and said some things that really clue us in that she knows what she's talking about when it comes to this kind of thing. But when Kat says luck in battle, Juniper responds with basically just asking for bad luck in the coming battle she says luck is for amateurs i have a plan you don't in a world where the narrative exists as a real metaphysical force if somebody says good luck you can't respond with i don't need luck that's so bad unless you're using it to create a mythos of yeah but but yeah yeah. (laughs) but what i think we need to take into account here is that juniper is not just her most powerful pieces juniper is a complex person with a background and it's not just knowing name stuff she is also culturally both orc and legion and in both of those i suspect that the idea of luck would be naturally both overemphasized and belittled i'd expect superstitions to spring up around battle things because they're the key part of both of those identities i speak dangerously when i talk about a people group but still they're they're orcs yeah uh and also when personal skill is so important and in legions practical efficiency planning on luck is something that should be discouraged especially since they're evil and so luck will not favor them that's fair all right i feel wrong i don't i i agree with what you're saying she still should have said this out loud Uh, so does Catherine ever get any mottos in these books? Uh, no, it doesn't. It's not really that kind of book. Well, she considers one. Oh. In response to Juniper saying, "Luck is for amateurs. I have a plan." She said, "To she we read in whatever format this book is <laughs> contrived to be, which is not something I care about, and it annoys me when we talk about yeah, the conceit of books. And that, unless it is presented as a diary or something." I don't, if it's a first person phrased account in the past tense like this is, that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care if Catherine were to die a book before the end and a different narrator pick up with no explanation of how. It's a story, and we have been given the story. I know, but, and and but, listeners, make sure to go to lasvegas.com and place your bets for how many episodes it'll be this time before we have the same conversation again. So the thing is, anyway, uh, Catherine decides. That if there were ever a motto for the 15th, this would be it. I have a plan. Watch how it goes south. That's not a good motto. No. Justifications matter only to the just. It's also not a good capital G motto, but that is a solid motto. Lies and violence, is it? What Mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. Lies and violence is a great motto. That sums things up. I have a plan. Watch Watch how it goes south. It's a little wordy. Yep. It reads more like a proverb than a motto. Mm-hmm. Even though it'd be a bad proverb, but nonetheless, it, it's a bit self-defeating. It's like like self-deprecation without actually being like 
for humility or humor. It's just, hey, uh, the things I want to happen aren't going to. It's so I, <laughs> This feels like Catherine's just deciding to be clever and making a fine attempt at it. This isn't a bad formulation of words. It would just be a bad motto. But, sure, you know, she's forcing it. <laughs> if there was ever to be a motto, this would be it. I have a plan. Watch how it goes south. <laughs> uh, so anyway, what's the deal with Callowin food? Archer was on a rooftop because named were inevitably afflicted with a deep thirst for melodrama. <laughs> it's the opening of the next part. And that's just true. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like we'll ever see Catherine on a rooftop over and over and over. And over and over and over, yeah, you're right. Up on the rooftop, Catherine pauses. Sorry, this isn't the musical episode yet. Oh, for all our listeners, I bought a ukulele, so the musical episode will be coming. And I'm not going to be ashamed of this because you already know I have a podcast, so I cannot sink any lower. We'll make sure to give you enough warning that you can adjust your schedules as needed for... Suddenly, with no warning, Archer throws the knife at Catherine's throat. Oh no. Is is Catherine okay? She manages to catch it, but Archer was testing her name. Named her so wild. And Catherine thinks. Fair enough, even if this was an idiot way to go about it. And is it, though? Because let's say Catherine's name was utterly ruined by the encounter. Archer turns and throws a knife, and she just, nearly literally, decapitates the 15th. What have you accomplished for anyone? How have you not made creation measurably worse? The best you can accomplish is the Legion does equally badly against the demon it loses to? You're looking at that from the wrong point of view, though. Archer, Archer is not a hero. She's not testing Catherine to see if she's worthy of fighting a demon or something. She's not worried about whether Catherine and the 15th particularly do well here. She's planning to leave... If Catherine fails to catch the knife and dies, Archer knows, okay, there is literally no hope here. I leave this moment. I get as much distance as I can between myself and this demon. There's no salvation here. There's no no hope here. However, Catherine's competent enough. There's a chance of things going well. Archer can take her time. She can wait up until the enemy shows up, which is what her plan is. And she can... Do the very respectful and, as she says, polite thing and kill some of the devils on the way out. Archer is throwing a knife at Catherine to determine her own place in the coming conflict, not to determine, oh no, will will the Legion stand against the vile demons? That's not our concern here. Oh, but it's still a wild move though, right? Oh yeah, no, it's it's absolutely (laughs) unhinged. (laughs) Speaking of unhinged things in a world that works this way, if she weren't the protagonist and able to make mm-hmm. this a scrappy line, Catherine leans forward and smiles and ends the chapter with, you think one less aspect and a limp is going to stop me? I don't win fights because I'm the squire. I win them because I'm Catherine Foundling. Remember last time when I talked about how, or maybe the time before that, or the time before that, remember how sometime in the last calendar year I talked about how Catherine's building a myth of Catherine and not of the squire. Yeah. Another piece of that. Yeah. Watch them take a swing. See where it gets them. That's great. Good for her. But but but, but we will see where it gets them because this isn't going to be fun. We've said it before. We will definitely say it again. I would wager uh, probably close to 100 times. EE is phenomenal at ending chapters. They are so good. And this is 
just more evidence of that. But we said it before, and we're going to say it again, I think. That that is, unfortunately, the end of this episode, because we are out of time for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Arata as we discuss... The long-awaited answer to the biggest question of this podcast. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. No, I I thought he'd fled his power broken. Oh. uh, Well, I guess we'll see next week. Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Little Crocodile Dance, that is little with three T's if you're trying to find it, by 23117649. And yes, like often... I did pick this song entirely based on the fact that it's a crocodile. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy It's Music. The music is provided by the generous license of the Pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by writing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access a fair number of things. Nothing new this episode because of the after credit segment. Don't tell anyone I told you about it. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Graham, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fae Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 68, interlude. That's not even a mommy, I'm very sorry to say. Wow. But she does have a way with children. Oh, this is my point. I'm sorry. I was waiting for you to... <laughs> you, you set yourself up and then just let it hang, and I was really excited <laughs> for where you were going. <laughs> McCatherine has a powerful mothering instinct.